Welcome to Literary Friction on NTS. I'm Carrie Plitt, here with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hi, Octavia. Hi, Carrie. What's the theme of the show today? Today, we're talking about corpses. Ooh. Mm. The words dead bodies in literature may conjure images of rotting hands reaching up beside a grave, or Norman Bates clutching his dearly departed mother, but corpses are so much more than that. At least that's what our guest, Caitlin Doty, argues whose book, Smoke Gets in Your Eyes and Other Lessons from the Crematorium, is an honest and often hilarious memoir about her life as a mortician and a speared defense of our need to engage with the corporeal reality of death. We'll be interviewing Caitlin, talking about the theme, and giving book recommendations, so stay tuned for the next hour. Okay, Octavia, before we begin the interview, can you tell us a bit about Caitlin? Absolutely. Caitlin Doty is a licensed funeral director. Um, she works out of L.A., She's also a writer, performer, and filmmaker, and is the creator of a website called The Order of Good Death, which is an online community of artists, actors, poets, musicians, directors, um, who are committed to staring down their death fears through their art and collaborating and having conversations. Her New York Times best-selling Smoke Gets In Your Eyes, which was published here by Canongate on the 16th of April, is a fascinating first-hand look at the funeral industry and an exploration of how we deal with death. Caitlin, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. So I want to first talk about this, uh, this thing that you talk about in your book, which is that we get a very unrealistic impression from books and films about what corpses are like. They're all... They're either zombies and sort of ghoulish scary things um or their alabaster well-preserved corpses that romantic poets hug within their sepulchers um but as you say they're completely different and a lot of this book is you're actually describing what a corpse looks like so can you describe to the listeners what a corpse is like <laughs> sure if you <laughs> haven't if you haven't met a corpse <laughs> which they're really lovely you should um <laughs> yeah th there's not a lot of natural death depicted in film or television or literature, really. Um, we, we get either the crime scene investigation corpses, which are actors with blue face paint on, or we get zombies. And zombies are interesting, too, because they're just decomposing corpses. They're not actually that good at anything. They're just kind of walking around being decomposing. And <laughs> if that's really what we're so afraid of, you know, that, that kind of fear just of the body is a natural process of decomposition is, is pretty astonishing and shows where we've come. And it would be healthy for people to have more of an exposure to just natural death and dead bodies. And the natural dead body um, usually looks um, like, like the light has gone out and the person has left the building. And people ask all the time, do you sense any presence around the body? Do you sense a ghostly um, a presence or an aura? And I really don't. And maybe that's just my secularism speaking, but I really don't. It, it's, it's, it's an object, but it's not just an object because they seem there's an importance to them and a sacredness to the dead body. And sometimes in the funeral industry, we do things like close the mouth and seal the eyes shut because people expect the person to be a lot more peaceful. But even a body with their mouth open and their eyes open just shows a level of relaxation <laughs> that it's really rare for a living person to have. So just the complete relaxation and stillness is what I would say characterizes a dead body. Yeah, it's fascinating. And thinking about it, the way we equate death with a long sleep, but like you say, like the level of relaxation of the muscles and everything, actually, you would never see a face in that state. Um, I wanted to ask you about um, picking up on what you said about our fear being of decom decomposition and decomposing bodies, that for the living, this idea of a body without a soul inside is that it becomes more like a thing, like an object. Um, and what do you think about that? It's definitely not a thing. And if you look through the history of how people have handled dead bodies and corpses, the corpse has always been, or the fresh corpse at least, has always been a halfway point between living and, and death. And for a lot of cultures, they have something called secondary burial, which means that you, after somebody dies, you do the first ritual and you bury the person or, or do something with the body. And the period of decomposition is a really important one because the time of decomposition is the time where the soul needs to make the transition or needs to leave the earth or do what needs to do and that people are involved with that. And then after that, 
you clean the bones or you wash the bones and then you bury them again. And that's the second time. And finally, the person is released. So for a lot of cultures, just even decomposition in that period is still very much an interaction with the dead body. So it's really almost only in Western culture that we're so strict about as soon as the person dies, it's a moment of death and donezo, we're done. It's, it's nothing more. And that's a pretty recent modern invention. Yeah, you have a great quote about Byron, who is the first corpse you shaved, uh, which is a great opening to the book, um, in which you say, he is a hybrid of something sacred and profane, stuck with me at a way station between life and death. And I think that that liminality of the corpse, I think you capture really well. Thank you. Yeah, that's that's an important liminality. Is one of my favorite words. Mine great. too. Um, <laughs> it's been many oh, college oh, we're getting had academic that now. <laughs> Snap. <laughs> Snap. Um, yeah, it it is. It's it's liminal. It's it's space in between life and death, and it's one that we're not doing ourselves any favors by ignoring, because if we just you hear people all the time say. Don't worry, don't do anything with my dead body. Nothing has to happen. Throw it away, cremate it, doesn't matter. But in a lot of ways, it does matter because we're humans and we want to see the proof of death and we want to be involved with death and the dead body somehow. And it's, it's we're evolutionarily designed, I believe, to, to want that. And by not doing that, we're actually doing ourselves an emotional disservice. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting idea and, and something that... Um, when I think about death, I, I'm always aware of how distant I am from it, you know, in, in the way that I live. Um, and, you know, most of us have a healthy fascination with the idea, but very few of us take the step of becoming a mortician and making it the focus of our, of our living moments. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what drew you into that career. Sure. I had, uh, I had an interesting experience when I was younger. First, first experience with death, I saw somebody die when I was very young and uh, fall from the second story and, and hit the ground. And that really messed me up as, as a kid because I didn't have any context for it. I didn't have anybody saying, this is death, it's totally natural. Do you need to talk about it? How do you feel about it? What does this mean to you? That just wasn't what goes on in Western culture. So I really took that with me and I became really interested in academic death, um, me medieval history and rituals around death. And I took that with me through through college. And then when I got out of college, I decided I wanted to see if I could really work in the industry and see what was going on behind the scenes. And in some ways, it felt like a bit of a whim. But as soon as I did it, I just immediately knew that it was what I was supposed to be doing. And it, it fell into place in a way that nothing had ever fallen into place for me before. And that was seven or eight years ago. And here I am today. <laughs> There's such great characters in the first mortuary that you work in, um, or funeral home, or as you say, there are many different words for it. But um, can you just talk about some of the employees? Because that was one of the joys of reading this book, was, was the people who are actually dealing with death every day. Right, so the, the three employees in the book are Mike, Chris, and Bruce, and their real names are Mike, Chris, and Bruce. It's <laughs> the same, same guys, and they all gave me permission to use their names in the book and obviously the dead people I did change names because you don't want the family finding out that this is what was going on behind the scenes right. um, but <laughs> what I like about these three men and what they taught me is that they're gruff and they're human and they're complex and all sorts of stuff happens but in the end I hope what gets across is that they really do care about their jobs and they really are good people and they, like me in the book, are just trying to figure out how to live a life when you get up every day and you go work in death. And Mike especially had a wife and had a child who was maybe four or five. And he's there all day cremating babies and, and toddlers and wives and, and fathers. And you have that and you have a child. And, and I don't even know what that would be like mm. and to go and then have to come home and to not really have an outlet to talk and to understand and everybody's gruff and trying to do their job and be distant but we're all kind of softies and we're all being affected by it and I'm friends with all of these men until today and I went back up and visited recently and it's just really it is kind of like coming home a little bit. Mm, I bet it, it's really actually one of the things I found the most comforting about reading the book was the 
the reverence and the respect that you all have for what you're doing, but you know, not at the expense of some good old gallows humor and realism. And that's, I think, one of the things that's so powerful, that you don't have to be this kind of hand-wringing Victorian style, you know, let's sanitize everything in order to be respectful. It's so interesting when sometimes I'll get criticism from other funeral directors saying, like, we would never do that. We always have full respect for the dead at all times. Yeah, pu- puke noise. And <laughs> what I Octavia fa- just made a puke. Yeah, she just made a, a puke, puke symbol, and that's symbol. totally appropriate for the situation. Uh, but it is, you. I, I honestly do think that those are the ones that you kind of have to worry about. You know, when someone is aggressively telling you, oh, we're respectful and you can't have any humor and you can't have any lightness. And it's like, well, I don't know what you're, you know, it's quite possible that you're doing some weird things because I don't trust anyone with no humor and no, because death is so tragic and comic and awful and grotesque and hilarious and all of these different things at once. And if you're only letting in one small part of that or only telling the public that you're only letting in one small part of that I just don't think you're a complete character or a complete person and I don't I just don't trust people like that um and actually one of the things you do in this book is just describe what happens in a crematorium like not just dead bodies but what people are doing how you cremate a body how you embalm a body and from what you've said, people are really hungry for that knowledge. Um, why do you why do you think they are, and why do you think it's important that people know about those things? People used to take care of the dead bodies themselves. It used to be a family thing. It used to body would be laid out in the parlor, and everybody would hang around and eat and drink and cry and mourn. And when funeral directors came in to take the body away. Um, it was because they were just going to take it to the cemetery. It wasn't because the person had just died and they had to get them out and they had to disinfect them. And we've had this sanitization around everything. And when you take bodies, something as fundamental as death and something that's going to happen to all of us and something that matters to every single human on earth is their own death. And when you take that completely behind the scenes and you take that away from them, I think that we've reached a point culturally where we're not happy with that anymore where we say, I don't know, that's not enough for me. I don't want my mom to just disappear when she dies. It doesn't bring me comfort to have this person poof away in a, in a magic, you know, magic glitter bomb. I want to see the body. I want to know what happens to her. I want to know it's important to me. And maybe there will still be people who that doesn't matter to, and that's fine, but there are a lot of people who want more, who do want to know. I'm the type of person who, if I go to the dentist, if he's sticking a drill in my mouth, I want to know when he's going to do it, why he's going to do it, how it's going to happen. I don't want to just be surprised by the drill in my mouth. <laughs> Me neither. Um, yeah, and you, and you say in the book, we live in a culture of death denial, which um, the way that you describe the funeral, the funeral industry in the US, I mean, I have not, thankfully, not had that much um, chance to interact with it here in the UK, but you describe this kind of capitalization of death, which is so morbid, actually. I mean, it, it really is morbid. Um, because it's it seems so mercenary and unnecessary and kind of the opposite of what you were just describing about a desire to be more involved in order to understand. I mean, what do you think about that? It's just the way, and, and, and I never really blame the funeral industry because I think the public was involved as well. I think it was sort of a, a dark dance between an industry that was realizing that it could market more than just selling a coffin it realized it could market services. It could market, we'll take the body away right away and we'll disinfect it and we'll embalm it. And they had all these things they could offer. And the public was saying, oh, great, great. Yeah, take, take it away. We can just pay you to do this thing that's hard. Wonderful, take it away. And so it was really a back and forth between these two. And, and also during a period like the Civil War in the US or World War One, death was everywhere and it was... I think it was depressing in a way that we can't really understand because in a way like, you know, the Iraq war, Afghanistan was kind of separated from most people's daily lives, but world war one was just devastating across the board. And people I think were looking to get away from death a little bit. And it wasn't the Victorian, beautiful, elegant death anymore. It was get me away from all of this despair. And that was maybe what happened at the time, but we're not in that place anymore. We're in a place now where we 
want more control over our medical care. We want more. We want to know where our food comes from. We want to know how we're destroying the planet, and we want to know what's happening to to our dead. We want to be involved with death in all of these forms. And for people who want that, there should be ways for them to do it. Let's talk a bit about the funeral industry because um, that's one of the larger discussions in the book. Um, and one of the things that I thought was really interesting was your discussion of how embalming started happening. You mentioned the Civil War. Can you just can you explain what um, how that started and what embalming is? And yeah, so embalming is the chemical treatment of the corpse to prevent decomposition. So it's removing the blood from the veins and pumping formaldehyde and other chemicals into the arteries, and it fixes the proteins and it keeps the body from decomposing not permanently but for a little longer than a naturally a natural body with nothing done to it and it started in um it, it had been used before for medical reasons or medical anatomical study but it really started in in the public in the civil war when these soldiers were going down northern soldiers were going down to the south to fight and they were dying on the battlefield and they needed to have some way to bring them back up and the big iron caskets were too expensive for most families. So these embalmers, these new kind of huckster characters, <laughs> would go from battle to battle and set up tents like ambulance chasers. And sometimes they would prop up dead, unclaimed dead that they embalmed, embalmed in front of the tents. It's kind of like, check, come on, come on, <laughs> like check out my work. Um, and people would come and they would have their loved ones embalmed and then shipped back up, which at the time is actually kind of a practical thing. Mm -hmm. And still today, if you want to fly a body from London to L.A., it's not a bad idea to have some kind of embalming if you want to be able to see them at the other end. But what happens is then funeral directors realize there's a whole industry here. We can start saying you need this service. You need to pay for this service and you have to be a trained person to do it. So it's really what made the funeral industry a professional industry. Whereas at first, they were just looked at as, as quacks. They were like medical door-to-door -door chemical selling quacks. And then now, it's, they're considered a profession and a needed profession. And in some ways they are. I don't think the funeral industry is going away, poofing away anytime soon. But we don't need them in the same way you, I think most people think that we do. So I'm a mortician, I'm a funeral director, and there's nothing that I do that I couldn't teach you both in a week or less. 48 hours. Give me 48 hours and you'll be done. <laughs> Whereas if I was a doctor or a lawyer, those you are... you do a course? Can I be Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're actually, that's one of the things we're, we're doing in, uh, I'm opening a funeral home in Los Angeles, and that's one of the things we're doing is probably going to be offering corpses like... You know, let us help you help yourself take care of a corpse. Was that a pun on corpse, corpses, courses, cor cor corpses. corpses, corpses? That might be a kind of a stretch. I use a lot. Of, I say uh, death stination and, and de death expert. <laughs> um, but I think I think the corpse corpse one might be a, a little bit hard. Far, bit far, babe. <laughs> yeah, I li no, I like it. I like your moxie. I like that you're trying. But that that one. If you have any more though, send them on down. I'll <laughs> I love puns, but I think I'll leave them to you. Okay. Um, I I just want to say that I would be honoured for you to direct my funeral, having read your book. <laughs> well, you just let me know. I will, babe. I'll give I'll me give me forty eight hours notice, there and I'll go. That's all we need. I'll get on the I'll get on the Virgin plane, <laughs> the one with all the like disco lights and <laughs> pleasant stewardesses. And, oh, not stewardess, flight attendants. Flight attendants. Stewardesses so gendered. I'm so sorry, gendered. did that not mean that. Scratch it from the record. <laughs> um, I thinking of, of embalming and what happens after the, after the body, uh, after life has left the body, let's say, um, I really loved the point that you make about uh, how we're imprisoned by our, by our culture, essentially, in, in what we think is appropriate and what we think is respectful. And you, you use the Montaigne quote, each man calls barbarism whatever is not his own practice. And then you use um, several different examples to show us how we, uh, in different parts of the world, we, we look at this next stage of, you know, like you say, the decomposition and the passing in a different way. Um, and I wonder, do you think that we ought to be educating children in schools, or, you know, about different death rituals in order to make different choices? Oh, absolutely. I think that we should have one semester of sex education and one semester of death education. 
and no one has asked me to come into their school and set right this on. up as of yet but uh, I would be happy to do so and I think that having both because it's also when you learn about death around the world you really learn about cultures and how cultures work and how cultural relativism works yeah. and cultural relativism is a thing that most people especially in America to be fair just don't grow up with you know it's America F yeah mm -hmm. and there's not a sense of hey how you do things is not necessarily how the world does things and you may have these emotions when you perform a certain ritual but they have same emotions around a completely different ritual and you don't get to look over there and say no you're doing it wrong you know, you get to look over there and say, oh, you're doing it different. Why? How did that happen? Where did that come from? And death is a really excellent starting point for that. So I would love that. Yeah, sign me up. And actually, you say that embalming has become something that the funeral industry does partially because of the profit and not necessarily because it's, because it's something that's necessary. Um, and can you talk a bit about sort of the capitalism involved in the funeral industry today and, and how you feel about that transaction. Sure. I don't think that every funeral director is out in it for the money. But what I do think is that over time, it's really built up into selling the expensive casket and selling the embalming and selling the whole experience is what makes a funeral director a funeral director you know what makes them professional it's where they earn their self-esteem so if you have somebody like me who's younger come prancing in and say actually you don't need any of this the family can just do it and then you bury the body naturally in a shroud in the ground and you don't need to pay for any of these things you can see why that's a big threat to them and a lot of funeral directors honestly don't even know that it's legal not to have a vault or not to embalm. They actually, they've been told that that's how it works and that's how it's always worked. And so that's how they do business. And there are a lot of funeral directors too on the ground, especially in this new corporate structure where the people up you know, at the corporate office are saying, where's our profit? What's going on here? And they're they're corporate. They've never seen a dead body in their life. They're they're corporate money makers, just like any corporate money maker is. They're running a billion dollar corporation, but the people on the ground suffer because the funeral directors aren't happy. They don't make much money, and they're being forced to upsell to say, "Wouldn't wouldn't mother have loved this rose casket?" Yes, it's you know two thousand dollars more than the next casket but do you do you did you love your mother mm. you know or that's the implication and which is why the funeral industry kind of gets a bad name too so there's a lot you know speaking of like disrupting an industry or something there's a lot that they could do i think to better work on public relations and the first thing is to not be seen as such a profit driven industry and how do you think being a mortician has changed your own relationship with death over time um, a lot, hugely. <laughs> um, <laughs> it ha has it? I don't know. Um, <laughs> yes, it has. Uh, I think it, it makes everything more immediate. And I've actually haven't been working with bodies for the last year or so because I've been writing the book and opening a funeral home. And the funeral home is going to be open in July, knock on wood. And I really, I really have missed it. I really, I, I can't wait to go back. And I miss the corpses, which I know sounds strange. But I really like the fact that I can go in and, and have that reality check and have that, that connection to death and have it remind me that I, too, am a piece of meat and will someday die and am just an animal. And all of these things really humble you and remind you that, that you're going to die and that no human is really all that special. Can you tell us a bit about what your funeral home will be like? Because as you say in the book, there are so many choices to be made about what a crematorium looks like and how people interact with bodies in funeral homes. Yeah, the, the primary focus of the funeral home is going to be uh, controlled by the family. So the idea is that we would facilitate whatever they wanted, but the ideal would be that they would take care of the body at home and we would come to their home and either hopefully before the person died even, talk to the person who was going to die, talk about what we were going to do, how we were going to handle it, and then off after all that happens, go with the person to the crematorium or go have the body washed at the crematorium or take them to the burial ground. Just have the family feel in control at every part of the process, um, which is the pretty much the exact opposite of how it's done now. 
the family gives over control of the body to the funeral home, and then the funeral home mediates interactions after that. Um, and it's almost like a, it's a play, and the funeral director is the stage director and is presenting the body to the family in a way they think is appropriate, as opposed to that body belongs to the family, and they can do with it whatever, whatever they want to do. That's really interesting to think of it more as as the funeral home being a facilitation space, you know, mm. a collaborative thing rather than this line. Um, I, I also, I wanted to ask you about, um, you talk about in the book how death can be the very source of our creativity. And obviously you, you have your website, The Order of the Good Death, which is very much about making links between creatives and the ideas of death and things. I wondered if you could talk a little about that. Yeah, well, I think that d dead deadlines, you know, there's no secret that there's dead in deadlines and there's a reason for that. Um, not linguistically, but <laughs> <laughs> metaphorically, um, in the sense that really the fact that we're going to die is the reason that we have any need to succeed creatively at all. You know, we wouldn't be recording radio, we wouldn't be at any of our jobs, we wouldn't be having children, wouldn't be doing any of these things if we had infinite time if we were all immortal and just kind of floating around, there's no need to achieve anything in the short term. There's no need to leave a legacy because you're, not, you're gonna be here, you're not going anywhere. So the immediacy of all creativity and all creation throughout human history has had death as its, as its motivator and as its focal point. Um, so by having the order of the good death and having artists work on that question, it's just making clear to people that death is the source of of our lives and when we're asking these big fundamental questions about politics or war or religion or whatever it is that's all death and that's where it comes from and let's let's be more honest about what we're talking about here you have a youtube uh series called ask a mortician where you do um you basically ask people's questions about um about death and about what it means to be a mortician um how does that are you ever surprised by any questions that people ask? Not really anymore. Sometimes there'll be one that's just kind of so bonkers that you're like, okay, well, that's a little illegal and a little strange. But there's not really any any bad questions. There's there's because there's always you can take it in a direction that makes sense. You know, if you know if you say I want to be dropped off, you know, a boat into the ocean, and why can't I do that? Well, okay, here's here's the laws. Here's why I want a Viking funeral. Why can't I have that? Well, here's how it goes. Da da da. da. So there's always ways. So can to you not have a Viking funeral? You cannot have a Viking funeral because one, not actually how the Vikings <laughs> did it. Oh no. <laughs> um, it's a, it's a, it's a Hollywood it's a Hollywood thing. The flaming boat and the arrow and the burning at sea. The boat would burn way before the body. So what you get is like a half-charred body bobbing around the body of water. Not quite as romantic a notion. No. <laughs> wah, wah, wah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I'll, I'll have to go with Vicarian being eaten by vultures, which yes, you talk about. that is very possible. Is that not legal? A, not so much in the West, but it's very possible. Okay, we'll, we'll talk. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> okay, I think we have time for one final question, which feels like a very personal question, uh, but it's one that you discuss in the book, so I'm going to ask it anyway, which is, um, how would you like your body to be treated after you die? Yeah, carrion, just like, just like you. Um, <laughs> it's a thing we share, you and I. Um, yeah, I would love, and this is not legal now, but I would love to just have my body be eaten by animals because I am not a vegetarian at the moment. I eat animals, and they should have their turn with me when it's all over. I like that. Octavia, how would you like to die? Um, uh, peacefully. How <laughs> 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 would I like to die peacefully? Um, afterwards, I've never really thought about it, but when I read Caitlin's book, I was really captivated by the wary cannibals um, and the sense of um, respect with which they consumed the body. I, I like the idea of, of the body going back into the community which nurtured it. Um, but I don't know. Would you? Do you think you and the rest of my friends would be up for that? I'll think about it. <laughs> <laughs> you look like you taste delicious. <laughs> yeah, you have really inspired us today, Caitlin. Thank you so much uh, for for being on. the The book is called um, "Smoke Gets in Your Eyes," and it is 
it will change the way you think about death. So please go out and buy it. It is published by Canongate and will be in bookstores by the time the show goes out. All right, now is the section of the show when we talk about the theme, which is corpses. Dun, dun, dun. Inspired by our lovely author. Although now I feel bad saying it in a ghoulish voice because actually I must respect them. And um, Oh, they don't feel very ghoulish anymore. No. Caden's explained things. It's really extraordinary how it, it's changed. I'm thinking about bodies and dead bodies and, yeah. Yes, but I suppose we need the dramatic effect. So. We do. We should really corpses. be putting this show out in October, shouldn't we? But there we go. <laughs> um, well, Caitlin made the point in, in her interview that we don't have a very realistic view of corpses, and that is certainly true for literature as well. Um, there are plenty of dead bodies in detective stories mm. and zombies in Pride and Prejudice and Zombies and um, and sort of beautifully preserved dead women who have just sort of coughed their last breath and are lying with alabaster skin. But, but actually, you know, these aren't very accurate portraits. Nevertheless, uh, literature is populated with dead corpses. Um, and what do you think their power is? Why do you think there are so many dead bodies strewn throughout the history of literature? Well, if you think about the importance of conflict in storytelling, a dead body is a great place to start because you you have a catalyst for a narrative right there. Why are they dead? Who are they? Who were they? What happens next? Um, but I think also to pick up on something that Caitlin was talking about in the interview about death being the motivator for, for creative endeavor. Um, so it is ever present anyway, whether the corpse is actually, you know, physically there in the in a storytelling or as this kind of um, haunting in some way. Um, I mean, it's interesting because you say that, that literature is populated with dead bodies and of course it is. But when I was thinking about examples for the show, I actually realized maybe it's more my reading. I mean, I used to be obsessed with Ian Rankin's detective novels. So there were lots of bodies in that, usually female bodies um, violated in all kinds of exotic ways. Um, and obviously the Stieg Larsson trilogy, there's a lot of dead bodies in that. But actually in kind of literary fiction, um, I couldn't think of that many. And that was interesting because it's kind of, um, like you say, it, it, this avoidance of the reality of what a dead body actually is. So there's a sort of um, euphemistic use of death in a lot of literature. But what is so rare is a, a realistic, in-depth, detailed description of the decaying corpse. Mm. And I suppose... Uh, all of these detective novels and horror stories only help to keep corpses out of literature because when you see a corpse in a novel, you think, oh, this is a horror story. Yeah. And if somebody is writing a serious novel, it's probably very hard to insert a corpse without having all of those other associations. Absolutely. And I think also there's something very uncomfortable um, as a writer about the voyeurism of writing about a corpse if you've never seen one. And again, like what what we really learned from Caitlin's book was that, you know, the death industry is a mystery. And actually, you know, I'm a 28 year old woman and I have never seen a dead body up close, which historically is unfathomable. Um, but in this day and age is very normal. And I'm a writer, but where I, t you know, I feel like death and, and dead bodies is, it's something that actually it's so real that to try and imagine it and to try and write it, it, it is kind of disrespectful in a way. Um, and I can, I can see that being a reason why lots of writers avoid it. I wonder if you looked at sort of literature since the, say the novel began, if you get less and less dead bodies in books. I don't mm, know how you would I ever wonder. quantify that, but. Someone's probably done a thesis about that. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, the dead bodies were certainly more, I, I can think of a lot more sort of Victorian and romantic mm. novels that feature dead bodies. And even things like Memento Mori's where like people keeping, uh, Keats has a poem where um, the heroine keeps the head of her lover mm. as a memento mori. And that, I mean, that's part of the fascination of that, of course, is, is the gruesomeness of it. But, you know, dead heads were around all the time in those days. I mean, <laughs> we don't really see, we don't really see severed heads anymore. And when we do, it's, um, it's, it's terror. Mm, but, um, but it was, it was certainly, I mean, shrunken heads, there was a real craze for collecting them so much so that people, I think um, people would kill other people and turn their heads into shrunken heads. 
that I'm only I only know this because um, uh, there's a book that recently came out called Severed by Francis Larson, which is all about the history of of severed heads. So that is um, certainly something to look into. Yeah. On the theme. Well, yeah. And it's it's interesting just thinking about, um, yeah, this idea that maybe dead bodies, they populate novels from a particular period of time. It would make sense if the, the realist novel is reflecting the reality of its time. Um, in those, you know, Victorian and pre-Victorian eras, death was much more a part of people's lives. It was less uh, annexed. Whereas now, you know, a realist novel is not, you know, you'd have an open casket, uh, an open casket funeral perhaps, but, you know, if you're writing a realist novel in 2015, how many dead bodies are really legitimately going to appear if you're setting it in the Western world? Um, you know, if I think about, I, I was thinking about a book called A Fine Balance by Rohinson Mystery, which is set in India. That's full of dead bodies because it's very much part of the daily life of, of the communities that he's writing about over there. Um, but I don't, I, I, I wonder, I wonder how you would bring it into to the, the lifestyle of, you know, white Westerners. Yeah. In a story. And I wanted to bring up another thing that came up in the interview, which is that um, bodies are not things. There's something between um, the, this world and another world. Mm. Um, and, and you can say that in a sort of religious way or, or a non-religious way. Um, and they have a tremendous amount of power um, in our world and significance just think about you know the fuss they made over richard the third's funeral or the body of lenin or mao you know like all of these sort of uh corpses that still have the power the spark and the power of the person who's once in them and and i think authors have played with that a lot Mm. in literature um especially the disconnect between what somebody was like when they were living and what they're like when they're dead and and the way that this there there still seems to be something of them there and Mm. yet there is not well and it's kind of the question of what constitutes self is selfhood something that is to do with your spirit and what animates the body or does it lie in the body in reality it's a bit of both you know we are our physical aspect and we are also our metaphysical aspects um and in, and death is what wrenches those two things apart, which is why I think we find it so endlessly fascinating. Also, because it is the great equalizer. Death is going to happen to each and every one of us. And um, it's something that we all have in common. And therefore, also a fear of it is, is another great equalizer, a great leveler and a, and a place where we can communicate with each other. There's a great scene in um, Alexandra Dumas B. Um, I just print Dumas. I'm sorry, I can't okay. pronounce French. I always get really <laughs> nervous before I have to, and then it goes horribly, and Octavia gives me this look that's like, you disgust me. <laughs> um, <laughs> mean, no, I don't. Um, why don't you read the title of this? Because you have it written down to Le Dame L- La Dame Cam- aux Camélias. <laughs> <laughs> La Dame aux Camélias. Yes, um, <laughs> in which the hero, uh, Armand, digs up his lover's dead body, but is disgusted by her changed appearance. Um, mm. so, you know, it's that, that's like a, such a scene of dramatic tension. It's that the, the corpse is the locus point for, um, their love and what the love has lost. And also there's, there's a great sort of counterpoint to that in Wuthering Heights when, um, Heathcliff through a sort of, he convinces the sexton who's burying another body to like show him Kathy's body. Um, and he says it is hers yet after 17 years of decomposing in the ground. So that is so, I I mean, he is obviously deranged because it (laughs) definitely wouldn't have looked like Kathy, but you know, it's that, that the body still has power, that the body is both a reminder that we are nothing more than flesh and bones, but also that we, we are not that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And the, the kind of transition from soul to thing, um, when you're left behind as thing object, you become a symbol, you become um, a shorthand almost for the person, I think of, of Mao in Tiananmen Square, which I, I went to see his embalmed body when I was there when I was much younger. And he is this symbol of this enormous amount of, of history and everything. Um, and it doesn't matter that he's no longer there, you still feel this sense of reverence and kind of the ghoulish fascination with with how it, it remains so important. Um, I think that point of fascination is a really good one because that is uh, that is part of why Caitlin's book is so great mm. and why 
books with dead bodies are so great because there is a fascination. There's a fascination with what does the flesh become mm, mm-hmm. um, once we have departed. Yeah, and I was thinking of um, Thomas Hardy's Far From the Madding Crowd, which I haven't revisited for many years, I have to admit. But it came to my mind immediately when we decided on the theme because of this sequence that I found so... Um, it made a very big impression on me. And it's almost this hallucin- hallucinatory um, moment where um, Bathsheba goes to open the coffin of Fanny Robin um, and she doesn't find just one corpse, she finds two because there's this dead baby there. Um, and, and Bathsheba does this in this kind of quest for the truth. Um, and that there's this idea that in death lies truth because it's unequivocal. Um, and then Hardy, so he kind of writes this really spooky intense scene and then he sort of tries to make it all okay at the end (laughs) by saying the youth and fairness of both the silent ones withdrew from the scene all associations of a repulsive kind so it's like he tries to just tie it up neatly in a bow um but actually this act of of going to the grave and you know or going to the coffin rather and, and and wrenching it open seems so sacrilegious as well because it's a transgressive act to look death in the face like that even when Hardy was writing, you know, it carries weight because like you say, it becomes, the body becomes so much a symbol and therefore every way in which you interact with it becomes a symbolic act, symbolic act as well, mm. which is ripe for literature. As totally, we know. yeah. Okay, so let's talk about our favorite dead bodies in literature. Mm. <laughs> well, my fave um, <laughs> is Addie Bundren um, in As I Lay Dying, which is a novel by William Faulkner written in 1930. Um, I've been waiting for a while to talk about Faulkner on this show and I finally get my chance. Go for it. Very exciting. Um, So this is a beautiful stream of consciousness, quite short novel in which um, the Bundren family must transport their dead mother in a coffin to her hometown in Jefferson, Mississippi, um, where she said she wants to be buried. They meet a whole bunch of terrible obstacles along the way, including a a sort of um, flooded river and various other things that mean that it takes them a really long time to get to Mississippi. Um, and it's told from a sort of first person perspectives of all of the characters, each chapter shifts. Um, and what is so great about this novel um, is that not only does it acknowledge the uncomfortable realities of the corpse. So by the time they get there, people are complaining about how much the, the coffin smells wow. because she's literally rotting in the coffin. So this is, this is not, uh, you know, your usual euphemistic pulling the bullets. wool over the eyes as yeah. you, um, <laughs> <laughs> but also, um, the corpse actually talks, Whoa, which is brilliant. Lady. And, and I will say that it's been argued by scholars that Faulkner might've been going back in time, but that is not the impression that you get when all of a sudden, instead of, the one of the members of the family it's Addie speaking um and actually she's it's quite um sort of regular stuff it's not about being a corpse it says in the afternoon when school was out and the last one had left with his little dirty snuffling nose instead of going home I would go down the hill to the spring where I could be quiet and hate them (laughs) so also that's just a wonderful line so favorite dead body Addie Bundren as I lay dying Octavia take it away I will um Mine's a bit of a cheat, actually. I um I have to start with a spoiler warning because my favourite corpse, you only realise that he's dead at the end of the book. So um, cover your ears. Yeah, if you want to read Flann well, O'Brien's no, no. <laughs> The Third Policeman. <laughs> yeah. Oh wait, no, <laughs> you did <laughs> <I> it. it. <laughs> you totally ruined it. I had it all carefully laid out so I wouldn't <laughs> so kill it for sorry. anyone, and you killed it. Um, so there you go, everyone. Now you know what happens at the end of Flann O'Brien's The Third Policeman. Um. It's a great, bizarre um, and brilliant book. And actually, the nameless narrator, his corpse is never present. So that's why it's a bit of a cheat, because um, the corpse itself is not really the focus. But it's it's a book that's kind of all about death. Um, and uh, he's a character that you, you, you ride along in this very surreal um, experience with him and, and then you f- only fully understand that he's dead when you finish the book but you get your you get your inklings along the way um, and interestingly it's from a similar period to the Faulkner it was written in 1939 um, although not published until after his death in the late 60s um, and I found it extremely funny but also sometimes really frustrating it's very absurd and surreal and sometimes if you're tired and reading it you know you're getting a bit annoyed um, 
but there's something incredibly gripping about it and it's it's like nothing else I've ever read um and it's eventually pretty harrowing at the end but it's a powerful exploration of the human condition and the circularity of life and death um and he really explores the bureaucratic potential of hell a bit like Kafka um and metaphysics and everything but yeah it, it it's written with this he has a very particular style Flann O'Brien um and it's uh yeah it's a, it's a great book it's a really really great book I would recommend it a lot Sounds great. I said I, I, would, read I it. recommend it a lot. I would recommend it wholeheartedly. Um, <laughs> would you call it the 1939 Sixth Sense? Not even a little bit. <laughs> Darn it. Darn it. All right. Well, uh, we'll be back in a moment with our book. So uh, let's talk about our book recommendations. Octavia, do you want to go first? Sure thing. Um, the book I'm recommending this month, I haven't actually finished yet. I'm right in the middle of it, and I'm still loving every page. Um, it's called Clothes, 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 Music, 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 Boys, Boys, Boys. And it's by Viv, Viv Albertine, who is the former guitarist of the fan-punk band The Slits, who are one of my favorites ever since I was about 10. Um, and it's, it's just great. I actually have never really been into reading autobiographies or biographies before, and something happened when I turned 28. <laughs> I think I became more aware of my mortality and therefore wanted to read about other people's lives, actually. Um, and it started with Patti Smith and now it's Viv Albertine. And um, I think it's great. She's, uh, she's brilliantly irreverent. She's incredibly honest. It opens with the phenomenal first line, anyone who writes an autobiography is either a twat or broke. Um, brilliant. And actually, when I first read it, I misread that as a twat or a bloke, which I think also works. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, she, she tr stays true to her punk principles and it's really punchy. Um, every chapter is only about two or three pages. Um, it's stark prose, but it's very funny. It's sharp. It's quite shocking sometimes. Um, also, it's got some wonderful descriptions of London in the 60s when she was growing up. She talks about being barefoot, running around in Tufnell Park and um, hitchhiking to Amsterdam where she ends up catching crabs from a junkie. And like th but this kind of bizarrely innocent um, amble through life, which was quite similar to Patti Smith's Just Kids, actually, the way she describes New York. Um, but then it, it, I've just sort of started the second half where she's older and it's getting a bit more pathos. And she talks about what happens to her after she leaves the band. And she starts to deal with the kind of problems of womanhood and, and you know, aging as a woman and, and what that means. and. Um, she said of the book, I want girls to see how often you have to fail to be anything in life. I think young men and boys are taught to fail. It's nothing to them. They do sport, they fall over, they shout, I'm all right, and carry on. But with girls, they're so appallingly embarrassed to fail. It's like it's considered unfeminine. Um, and I think I just think it's a great message for, for women. But I think um, men should read it too. There you go. Octavia's feminist rant of the month. But actually, that sounds brilliant. I won't <laughs> mock you for it. Um, and I, this month, am actually recommending an essay rather than a book, um, mainly because I'm uh, sad to say that I have not read any books outside of work or Caitlin's, and I feel like I can't really recommend unpublished manuscripts or the book that we just interviewed an author about. So I'm going to recommend an essay. I think you essay. can recommend my book. <laughs> well, I recommend Wait, am I, Smoke am I, Gets am in I Your Eyes. Am I a twat or am I broke? <laughs> I'm dead. No, I, th I think probably more. Tw well, well, twats, both. Can you be both? Can be cool. Also, I have to interject and just say I love the way Americans say twat. I always thought it was spelled differently. We say twat, 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 twat. Well, we were talking about the. I, I came here in the tomato car yeah. as opposed to the tomato car. <laughs> I've been here for six years and it doesn't I'm get a, old. I'm a, I'm a twat in a tomato. <laughs> Very good. Um, yes, but I'm recommending an essay, which I think is pronounced the same in, in both countries, um, by uh, Zadie Smith, who is one of my favorite authors anyway. Um, and this was first published in the January 2013 issue of the New York Review of Books, and I read it at the time. Um, but I was thinking about it the other day and just went back to read it. And it is, I think, one of the most incredible essays I've ever read. It's very short, and it's called Joy. Um, and it's essentially her attempt to define joy um, through this beautiful accumulation of descriptions of events in her life. Um, but it ends up being very profound. She talks, um, she, she talks about, you know, falling in love. And, but she also has this scene in Fabric Nightclub in 1999 um, when she's just taken ecstasy. And she's sort of, and I, I don't, I, it's, 
it's the way that she's able to just capture an experience that is so personal and yet seems so universal and instantly connects with you, even if you weren't taking drugs and fabric in 1999. Um, that, uh, that makes me fall in love with her prose every time I read it. And I actually think it's quite a profound meditation on, on actually on death in a way and on, and on how joy is terrifying. And it's not something that we can experience every day because it's so not ourselves um, that we couldn't really exist if, if we felt it all the time. Um, and it's, I just recommend every, it's on the internet, um, and everyone should read it. Caitlin. Yeah. Well, mine is going to be much more awkward than that. Cause I didn't have, that's going to be much more stumbly, but, uh, what I would like to recommend is a book by full disclosure, a friend and colleague of mine, uh, that just came out, um, on Thames and Hudson, I think in the UK and the U S and it's called Memento Mori. And it's by a friend of mine named Paul Kudinaris. And he is this really kind of ridiculous exciting character who dresses in this very particular kind of like a cross between like prince and a dandy and just really and a, like a goth prince it's amazing and he travels the world looking at death and he's for the past 10 plus years he's gone around the world photographing mummies and charnel houses all over the world in the strangest dark caves in Rwanda and in in Indonesia and all of these places and he's done two books prior to this and this is his mental mori is his culmination work and it's a little more expensive because it's a full coffee table beautiful book but it's full color photographs of just corpses and mummies all around the world and gilded you know mummies buddhist mummies painted gold and and these gemmed bejeweled skeletons from the counter-reformation where nuns would would intricately put jewels on relics and display them to to the faithful um, and just a really fascinating way of looking at death around the world and what we're kind of missing in in the west and it's it's a really beautiful book and it will certainly be the the center of conversation if you actually have it on your coffee table. Uh, that is very on theme. I did well. Well done. I don't read any books, not about death. <laughs> Thank That's you. That's the it only sounds, recommendations I have. It sounds fascinating. And after reading your book, I'm, I'm much more interested in that book. So maybe uh, my dad will be getting it for Christmas this year. Uh, yeah. Tell him. <laughs> dad. Um, Caitlin, thank you so much. Thank you guys for having me. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you to Caitlin Doty. Please read her book, Smoke Gets in Your Eyes, which is in bookshops now. It's completely changed the way I think about death, and I think it has yours as well. Absolutely. Totally. We'll be back in four weeks at the same time talking to Terry Stiatsny, whose debut novel, Acts of Omission, won the Political Fiction Book of the Year at the Political Book Awards this year. I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction on NTS. <laughs>